0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Today we are in chapter 38 of Genesis. Um, And let let me just warn you, this is a very, very uh, interesting uh, passage. There's a lot here. As we uh, look at Genesis typically and we go through it, uh, in our minds, right, we go from like last week's passage, that is, Joseph being thrown into a pit, and our mind goes to next week's passage of of him fleeing the advances of Potiphar's wife. And often we skip over the nugget uh, that is chapter 38 of Genesis. Um, If Genesis were a TV show, this uh, episode would be a spinoff. And it, as it would look into the life of Judah, uh, and if this were a TV show, it would be rated mature. Just giving you a heads up. Being serious, some weird stuff in this one. And uh, also, this is why your pastors like expository preaching because if it, if we didn't go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it's it's ones like this that we would just conveniently skip over, right? Um, but again, this chapter is about Judah. This is Joseph's, one of his older brothers. Uh, and if you remember, he is the older brother that made the suggestion that we kill, or that rather than kill Joseph, because who could profit from that, let's sell him into slavery. Now this small spinoff uh, is about a 20-year uh, detour into Judah's life. So this one chapter covers a little more than 20 years. And so a lot of time is passing in this Passage. If you're a note taker, got a few points for you. It is Judah's covenant failure, Judah's parental failure, Judah's moral fa- failure. Failure. Excuse me. And God's response to those things. Okay. Um, before we break this down, let us pray. God, we thank you um, for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your word. I, I thank you that we can just slow down this morning and come before you and worship together. Lord, we we praise you for your word, and I just ask that you use this word today to bring about repentance, to show us our sin, and to draw us closer to you. Lord, we love you, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first point is Judah's covenant failure. Now, if you remember, starting with Abraham, God made a promise with this family The Lord said he would increase their descendants, he would give them the promised land, and that he would bless the world through them. And this was God's plan, and Judah was part of this covenant family. Thus, he was part of this plan. Let's see what Judah does. Genesis 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hirah. Now, first thing we notice is that Judah leaves his family, right? He separates from his brothers, from God's covenant people, and he decides to go his own way. Now, we don't know why he leaves his brothers, but for a time being, he leaves God's people. His family, this covenant family, and he clings to those outside of the covenant promise. Now, this is true back then, and it's true today, that when God's people separate themselves from the body, from God's covenant people, we get into some trouble. When we turn away from the family, we, what we end up doing is embracing sin. And this is exactly what happens to Judah. He surrounds himself, not with those who love the Lord, but those who mock it. Not those who would hold him accountable, but those who would be okay and be gentle, encourage his sin. His business partners, right, are not God-fearers, but men who chase their ambition over godly obedience. The people closest to him, they reject the God of the Bible. And it's no surprise that his life will look more like a Canaanite than that of a child of the covenant. And how many Christians do we know who do the very same thing, who claim Christ, Who claim to be under grace, yet they leave biblical accountability and lean into a people who encourage their sin. How many live and play in open defiance from the Lord's commands? The Judah, right? With this is what he's doing. And there's no in the first verse or two. There's no obvious transgression that we can really point to outside that he's left accountability of God's people. He's no longer accountable to those, to his covenant family. Rather, he's embraced the way of the Canaanites. Judah's life probably looks very similar to what it did while he was living with his family. He was a shepherd, so he's doing what shepherds do, hanging out with sheep and whatnot, whatever else they do. He just is thinking, man, I got a new location just to move, some new friends. And then what we see quickly is that he now has a new wife. Look at verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and conceived and bore a child. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. He befriends the world, before he knows it, right, he's fully submerged as he now is married to a Canaanite woman. Now you might be thinking, what's what's the big deal? What's wrong with what's wrong with it? Maybe this Canaanite woman was nice. Maybe she was friendly, Jeremy. Maybe they were in love. Well, there's two things. If you look back, or if you remember chapter 28, which I know all of you do, because you memorize Will's sermons, right? Back in chapter 28, Judah's grandfather, you probably could finish the sentence, Judah's grandfather Isaac told uh, Judah's dad, Jacob, not to marry Canaanite women. He was very clear. Now, maybe this was because he didn't like those Canaanite women. They're nothing but trouble. Uh, Esau had married some Canaanite women, and they were divisive. They stirred up controversy in their house. Maybe this is Isaac being a, a mean old racist. I don't think that's what it is. I think the Lord revealed to Isaac the same thing the Lord would reveal to Moses later on. See, um, I I want to explain this. Moses writes the book of Genesis, but he also writes the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It is is, at the end of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy that we see the fullness of the law fleshed out. Now, in the law, God tells Moses, again, who wrote Genesis... That when the promised people, when the people would enter into this promised land, they're going to come across a whole different groups of people. And he tells them, among them, on the Canaanites. And God says this about the Canaanites. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they should turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is what happened to Judah's uncle Esau. And this is what also would happen to Judah as he did not heed the warning of the Lord that he laid on his grandfather's heart, Isaac. Now, Judah is brought to this new Canaanite world, this new Canaanite way of living. And Judah's going to feel tension between these two worlds the world in which he uh, is now living in, this pagan uh, world, and the world that this religious upbringing that he had. He's going to have this tension and struggle after leaving God's covenant people of what it means to be a godly husband and to be a godly parent as he tries to raise his kids outside godly instruction. So after he leaves God's covenant people, let's look at his next failure, Judah's parental failure. Judah and his wife had three children that we know of, uh, the oldest one is Ur. A nice, beautiful name there. Ur. Their son was uh, another son. Name was Onan, and the third child was Shelah. It should not shock you that when we learn of his children, that they are exceedingly wicked. All right? They do not follow the Lord. They don't fear the Lord. They do not seek to please the Lord. They're fools. In every way. And they act just like the world because it was the world that raised them. They were not raised among God's people. They were not raised within the word, but by the world. And thus they acted like what they saw. Now I want to say this, and I know this, that we, you can be a godly parent and you can Preach to your kids day after day, and you can be faithful, and we all mess up, right? But, and, and, and there's some kids that simply still rebel, right? Kids, some days, grow up to be adults, and they have to take account of, be accountable for what they do and what they choose. But that's not what we see here in, in the life of Judah as a parent. What we see is, 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 really, there's no evidence of godly instruction at all. In fact, later, we're going to see that he tries to excuse it. There's no evidence that he ever calls his kids to repentance. There's no evidence that he ever says, hey, maybe you should be careful not to offend the the creator of the world, your God, my God. There's no evidence of godly instruction. What is clear is that the fruit of Judah's rebellion and his failure to obey God's covenant command will lead to heartbreak with his own family, specifically with his children. His lack of faithfulness is going to trickle down to his children, who surprise guess what? They're going to lack in faithfulness. They'll have none. Look at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death, right? We don't know much about Ur. What we know is that he is a wicked, wicked son, so wicked that the Lord lost his patience and said, you know what? I'm just going to kill you. I'm done with you. I'm done. Again, we don't see Judah warning against the wrath of God, right? No godly advice from Judah. Judah may have been okay with it, but the Lord is done, and he says... I'm not going to be mocked, and he removes him from the earth. Now, what Judah does next will have some of you scratching your head, and this is where things get really interesting. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this sounds odd to us, right? Because think about what's being said. The second child, Onan, is being asked by his father to have sex with his sister-in-law, Tamar. Now, some of you might go, man, Judah is a wicked guy. And you're right. But this is not evidence of him being wicked. Judah's request is not out of wickedness. It's actually a sign of his religious roots, Now, let me explain, because I know some of you may be thinking, how is a younger brother having sex with his sister-in-law some sort of godly thing? doesn't sound very godly. Just hang with me. Now, as I mentioned, God gives what is called the Mosaic Law to Moses in the book of Exodus, and it's further fleshed out again in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, as I previously stated. Now, this is not the first time... We get parts of the law, a little bits uh, of the law that will later be fleshed out in full in in Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy. Okay. For example, um, we've already mentioned right, not marrying a Canaanite woman in chapter twenty-eight. This was a little shadow of the law that's more fully fleshed out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We see that there's my, my favorite topic, circumcision. Right. We see a little bit of this introduced into Genesis. Later fleshed out, all pun intended, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We see altars and sacrifices in Genesis, more fully fleshed out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This is exactly what's happening. A part of the law being hinted, but fully to be fleshed out later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's called a Leverite marriage. Now we actually see this. If you're a big fan of Ruth, you're like, "Man, Ruth, that's my book." You actually see this in Ruth. That weird thing with the with the sandal at the end. That's the Lever- It's a, one of the parts of the ordinance of the Leverite marriage. Um, so what Judah's is asking, just to, so we're all on the same page, he's asking his second son Onan to practice a godly religious ordinance that's been passed down by his godly family, an ordinance that is shown in Genesis, but again, fully explained. In the law, I want to read you part of the law so you don't think I'm a liar. Deuteronomy 25, five through six. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, that means sex, and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's Brother to her, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So I know this sounds super strange to us and super weird, right? At least I hope it does, right? We'll, we do some, <laughs> we can do some counseling later, maybe. There, there's a this is called again a levirate marriage, and there's a couple reasons that Leverite marriage was. Inst- Stalled. first it was it was to protect the widow um they did not want her they, they didn't as you saw in the law they didn't want her to be given away to an outsider that simply means to an unbeliever right what how the outside world how they treated women death would have been the preference it was to protect her not just her mind you but if she had any daughters it was to protect the daughters as well As the younger brother now took responsibility, financial responsibility, and was to protect that family by making the family his own. It was out of love for the widow, but also out of the deceased brother that they would take care of her because he no longer could. Secondly, the reason for a Leverite marriage was to protect the name. Now this may be a bit foreign to us, kind of. We have tombstones that we go and visit. We lay flowers at them. Uh, you know, if, if a tombstone gets like, someone doesn't take care of it, it's, it's seen as like disrespect to the dead, something of that nature. Well, They didn't have that, right? So this was a way to protect the name. As we saw in the law, if the wife produces a son with this new husband, brother-in-law, the boy would inherit what was due the dead brother. The boy would become the heir, so to speak. Therefore, the name would be continued. Right? The dead would be honored. For the Jewish community, it was to, to be blotted out of Israel, to be forgotten, is like dying a second death. They didn't want to be forgotten. I, I spoke to a rabbi once, and he told me uh, that his favorite parts of the Bible were the genealogies. And I'm like, that's the ones we skip over, right? And and the reason being is because it shows, he he would say, it shows the faithfulness of God to these families to not be forgotten, to be remembered was important and a way to honor them. Listen, there's a lot more I would love to talk about a Leverite marriage. Maybe I can do it on the podcast or if you want to get coffee and see if you have to marry your sister-in-law or if you want to talk about circumcision, you can choose. We can talk about either one. Buyer's pick, I'm available. So anyways, back to the story. Onan, he has an option. Judah asked Onan to honor his older dead brother, Ur, by taking responsibility for Tamar. And Judah is asking his son Onan to do something godly, honorable. Yet here's the thing. Onan was not brought up in the Old Testament church. He wasn't brought up amongst God's people. The problem is, Judah's God is not Onan's God. Judah did not raise them in the way of the Lord. He raised them to look at their culture, and they did. There was no desire of Onan to be obedient to a God they did not know. Now, I'm sure Onan saw his dad trying to be religious, Right? I'm sure he scoffed at his dad when he's picking and choosing when to be faithful and obedient. Uh, Judah reminds me of the guy that gets mad that someone didn't pray before a meal or take their hat off before prayer or during prayer. Yet, he's nowhere near God's people. He's not where he's supposed to be and he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's just religious. So did you to really think Onan would listen. In church, this is where it's about to get weird. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. First, I want to thank Will for randomly giving me this passage. <laughs> you are a swell fella. A truly great work friend. <laughs> you'll notice, you'll notice this passage will never be found tattooed on someone's shoulder. It's never the daily <laughs> daily memory verse on a calendar. Now, I know this passage is very strange, right? I get it. I know it's weird. But I want to read it again, um, and, and I, want, I want to deal with a couple things, because I would be doing it a disservice if I didn't explain some, some weird teachings that kind of come out of this. Um, Okay, let me read it again. Uh, 9 and 10. Uh, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste a semen on the ground as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. I'm not trying to be crude, I promise. Um, there were some really weird teachings. Um, there are there things written on this and, and seminaries, probably where I first heard it where people try to say this has something to do with masturbation. It has nothing to do with that at all. Not at all. The Catholic Church uses this verse to say contraception is, uh, is sinful. And you kind of get maybe where you see that, right? He spills his semen on the ground, and God kills him. But that's not what this verse is talking about at all. I want you to remember to kind of understand what we're, why this is written at all, why the Lord's like, let's write this part down. God God has promised to use this family. Um, God is going to use Judah in his family line. But look at what Onan is doing. First, Onan disobeys his father's commands that are rooted in what would be the law of God. Secondly, Onan is willing to have sex with Tamar. Do you notice that? He's willing to have sex with her, but not honor her. He's willing to use her for his physical pleasure and abuse her, but not honor her or his dead brother as the law commanded. And why does he refuse to try to give her a child? It tells us. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He knew that the offspring would not be his. Now you might go, wait a minute. Do they not understand the birds and the bees? They do, right? This is is not a biological claim, right? He knows, he doesn't have to go on Murray Povich's show and find out that he's the father. He knows that he's biologically the father. It means that this child, had he produced one, would not be his heir, it would be Ur's son. Thus, this baby boy, theoretical baby boy, would receive all of the wealth, we receive all of the inheritance and he would not i hope that makes sense what we see is onan's rebellion and refusal to be obedient was birthed out of greed so to ensure his wealth he would sexually misuse tamar over and over doing nothing but dishonoring her. And maybe the most offensive part is he uses the law of the Lord to justify it. He masks his actions by pretending outwardly he's being obedient to God, but behind closed doors, he's doing nothing but dishonoring her and his brother. He's doing nothing but mistreating this woman, Tamar. The desire for more money fuels Onan's disobedience. Maybe that's relatable to you. There are many men and women who gladly sacrifice obedience for financial gain. But how dangerous is ungodly ambition? we We see God take Onan and bury him along with all of his ungodly ambition. All of it, gone. As dead as he, because God will not be mocked. Two sons down, one remains. Genesis thirty-eight, eleven. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shalah, my, my son, grows up. Now listen to this carefully. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. After being with wicked Ur and after being abused at the hands of, of wicked Onan, he sends, Judah sends Tamar off. He sends her back to her father's house, which would have been an embarrassment and a shame, and and really because he really needed to get rid of the problem. She was a problem at this point. And notice what he does. He promises the youngest son, but he has absolutely no intention on keeping this promise. And notice who's receiving the blame for Ur and Onan's death. Remember I told you how he seems to justify some actions? Who's receiving the blame? He sends Tamar off. Why? Because he's afraid she's going to have the sons killed. As if their ungodliness and wickedness is somehow her fault. He blames not his boys who received the judgment of God because of their wickedness. He blames the innocent woman who was passed around, dishonored over and over again, And sends her away because her presence at this point is just an inconvenience. And what did she want? A child. And for some reason, to be part of this crazy family. She wanted to be part of this covenant family. That Judah fails as a father, he fails as a father in law as a leader within his home, whom he was the last one left to protect Tamar, and he discarded her as nothing. Which leads to our third point, Judah's moral failure. Now, some time goes by, several years years pass by, and uh, Judah's wife dies. Um, Scripture does not indicate, uh, or it does indicate, rather, that he was mourning and he was lamenting. Uh, we don't know for how long. What we do know is at some point he's emotionally recovers to the point where he can, he can move on with his life. And now um, it picks up during sheep shearing season. Tongue twister. He picks up there and he goes to a, a Canaanite city, Timna, which is where local sheep living in Canaan would go. They would take their sheep there. They would shear their sheep during the day. And at night they would practice and explore sexual curiosities. The Canaanite sexual appetite, by the way, was largely towards uh, young children around the ages of nine and ten, and towards certain particular animals. They write about it extensively in their literature and poetry, and I'm sure Judah, living in Canaan, uh, knew very much about this. In fact, I- I'm a little skeptical to think that he had never, he didn't know about the sexual happenings of Timna, given that when he goes there, he seems to know an awfully lot about cult prostitutes. But we'll see that in just a minute. As he's on his way to the city, Tamar is informed, hey, your father-in-law, I heard he's coming to the city. And so she, uh, she decides she's going to confront him because he made a promise, right? He made a promise, and the promise was this. I promise, I will make you part of this family. Trust me, trust me. I'll make you part of this family. I'll, we will protect you. We're just a little busy right now. My son's a little young. We'll call you, don't call us. So, he decides she was going to confront Judah, but not in the way that you may expect. Verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance at Hinaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not Been given to him in marriage. So, what does she see? She sees they finally get there. She's watching them. The son has grown up. She never got the call. She now knows, right, as she's in disguise and she's no longer dressed as a widow, she realizes that this promise was nothing more than a lie. That she was a problem that needed to get rid of. And what was that problem? She wanted a child and to be a part of this covenant family. So she plants herself by the road, dressed as a prostitute, and scripture tells us that Judah would see Tamar. And not knowing who she was, and thinking Tamar was a prostitute, he goes to talk to her. Not to ask for directions, mind you. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that, this, that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. Impressed? Now Judah, a child of God, a son of the covenant promise, has forgotten to what he's been called to. He can only think of a sexual appetite and he worships that and he serves himself. And listen, before any of us cast judgment, who here is without sexual sin? Not a one of us. Not a one. And I say that because when you look at Judah, what I want you to see is exactly what you and I are capable of. Apart from accountability but we're capable of apart from the body, and when we indulge all of our sinful ones. This passage shows the wickedness of man and our capabilities to sin. But it's also here for another purpose, and I want you to remember this for next week. It's to serve as a stark contrast between Joseph, who's fleeing from sexual sin at the hands of Potiphar's wife, and Judah, who's running to it, who's begging for it, and willing to pay a goat. No accountability, no bothersome church to speak into his life. Judah is like us, right? Quickly to fall into temptation. He promises to pay her if she'll just have sex with him. But Tamar's smart, right? She's smart. She knows Judah's not a man to be trusted. Look at the next passage here, 17 and 18. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What what pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Now understand, when when she he gives the signet ring, the cord and the staff, this is like him being like, I'll give you give him a driver's license, you're gonna have my social security card, and and, and and you know, whatever it is, right? My, my credit card, take it all. Right? He's obviously not thinking. All, he, is not, he, is, he is driven by foolishness. So of course, he agrees. They have sex. and She gets pregnant. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Would you hear that carefully again? He demands that this woman, who he impregnated, he doesn't know it yet, he wants her to be burned. It's interesting, isn't it? Judah's deeply upset with immorality all of a sudden. Like most of us, right? He's okay with his immorality. That's different. That's different. He was lonely, people. He's okay with his immorality. But what really gets under his skin is the immorality of other people. That's what he hates. But do you hear what he wants to do to Tamar? He wants to burn her. Right? He wants to kill her. The hypocrisy. Church, please, please, Because we are capable. Be careful not to become Judah. Quick to see the speck in the eye of others while ignoring the plank in yours. In this story, there's so much wickedness, injustice, deceit, abuse. And how can anything good come out of this story? Well, Listen, the God who can make the dead alive who can make everything from nothing. Our God is an expert at taking the ugly, the sinful, wretchedness of man and making it into a vessel by which we praise God for his glorious grace. And he does it over and over and over. Yes, this story can be redeemed. And we're about to see how God responds on our final point now the, the interesting part is, God responds, but He doesn't speak, but He is moving. In Genesis 38:25, let's read it. It says, "As she was being brought out, she sent a uh, sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant." And she said, "Please identify whose these are." the signet and the cord and the staff. Now, what I love is she doesn't say to the people bringing her out, these are Judas, right? She still seeks to, to honor him for some reason. She goes, hey, just do me a favor. Ask him who these belong to, and that guy should die too, probably. Right? Just <laughs> make it fair. Now, this doesn't mean she's safe. She expo- this doesn't mean she's safe. Like, Judah has the power to kill her. Sure, there'll be whispers in town like, how did uh, how did Tamar get his signet ring? Elbow, right? There will be whispers like that through the town. Doesn't he could easily silence her, kill her, right? Easily, but God does something here. God moves. Judah has failed in every area of life that matters to this point, right? He sold his brother. He left his covenant family. He married an unbelieving woman. He has not been personally faithful. He's failed to raise his kids in the Lord. He abandoned his daughter-in-law. He got caught trying to rent a prostitute. He gets caught being a hypocrite and trying to kill this woman. And now, here, this this woman who has nothing, no social status, no wealth to speak of, here God uses her to confront Judah with his sin, with his failures, with his immorality, and all of his rebellion. And this is how Judah responds in verse 26. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Now, in Hebrew, it actually reads, she is righteous, and I am not Here he sees the Tamar still fighting to be a part of this family. Be a part of God's family. It was Judah who lied, who mistreated, who discarded. Look, Tamar's actions, right? We we may look at them like, they're a little weird, a little suspect, right? But but she's forced into a horrible situation. And she is simply trying to make Judah a man of his word and and have him fulfill God's uh, law. Judah knew better. So what is God doing? How is he moving in this? Well, first, he causes Judah to repent. The death of his sons and his wife, that didn't cause Judah to repent. The guilt of what he did to Joseph didn't cause him to repent. The Lord himself causes uh, changes Judah's heart. And I know this because scripture is clear. Repentance is a gift from God, is a gift from God always. It wasn't repentance, true repentance doesn't come from a wicked man's heart. He was able to repent because God softened Judah's heart. And what does a repentant heart do? It confesses, it turns, it seeks to heal. Judah believed her to be righteous because she would stop at nothing to undo his lies and his failures and so that she may be a part of this family. Even if it mean, even if it meant humiliating herself, which is exactly what she would do, isn't it? She would humiliate herself posing as a prostitute just to get Judah to fulfill his promise. Meanwhile, Judah has done everything to forfeit his right to be a son of the covenant. But also notice this, God has blessed Tamar, and God has moved in Tamar's heart because perseverance is also a gift from God. It is not natural for a woman to be treated like this and continue to persevere in God's family. The perseverance of saints is by God alone. But beyond that, God blesses her by giving her protection. And I love it, right? She did not give up on God's family, right? She experienced just nastiness on on behalf of God's people, right? She saw they can be petty, argumentative, selfish, cold, just cruel. Yet, she didn't leave. God gave her home and I love it, right? I really do love that it mentions that Judah did not seek to have a sexual relationship with her. She had been abused and disrespected too much. God gave her a place. He made her safe. And he gave her exactly what she had been praying for the whole time, to be part of this family, and not just one son, but two. Look at Genesis 38, 27 through 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one uh, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew it back, his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. God gave them twins, right? which was seen as a, as a sign of a double blessing. Now, no doubt, right, this, this is going to be a little difficult to explain and like when they go back at family reunions, when people are like, how'd y'all meet? Tell us your story. right? That's going to get a little weird, isn't it? Listen, our origins are not always pretty, are they? Our backgrounds aren't always impressive. Some of us have very shady backstories. Some of us have shadier families. And when we look at what's behind us, sometimes it's hard to be proud of anything. Recently, my I say recently, but a year ago, my son asked me. Um, he said to me, Daddy, does anybody in our how, or our family own a diner? I said, nah, no, no one in our family owns a diner. Not that I'm aware of. He goes, Oh, okay, okay, okay. Hey, Daddy, does anyone in our family ever own a diner? And, like, just my family is, like, super weird, but, like, we know everything about everybody in our past. Like, we have a, a giant family book that has pictures and portraits that go beyond the Civil War and, like, you know, just paintings and this big, giant book of berries. And so, and I'm like, no, man, all the things, you know, we never, we never had a diner, never had a diner. It's, ha. Huh. Hey, Daddy, could we get a diner, open up a diner? I said, no, no, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we're going to ever do that. I don't want to open up a diner. And at this moment, he, he just plops on the couch, and his eyes well up with tears. I'm like, are you hungry? Do you want to go to a diner? Are you going to eat, eat something? Blood sugar low? What's going on, bud? And he's like, I just, I just want our family to be special, and, and special families own diners. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? It's a weird child." It was so sad, right? It was so sad. And and I try to make him feel better. We did something cool once, I'm sure. Uh, Never a diner. I tell you this story not to promote my newest endeavor, J and J Diner, but, (laughs) but, what what I'm telling you this is that sometimes we look in our past, and we see nothing special, right? We We see nothing good. We see mistake after mistake after mistake. We see addictions, traumas, feuds, abuse handed down by family members rather than grace, rather than gospel teaching. We see a bunch of Judah's and Tamar's. But listen, no matter your situation, your sin is not too ugly that God can't use it to paint a beautiful tapestry. We don't hear much about Tamar after this point. She's mentioned in Ruth as a woman who was blessed by the Lord. But she comes up one other time, and I want to read it for you. It's in Matthew 1, 1 through 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This family, in most cases, would be outcasts, thrown out. But God takes this broken people and he uses them. He uses them in a mighty and crazy way, a way that they would never even imagine. That he would use this family to bring about the Messiah, the Christ. And what I love is that all of Judah's follies, all of them, none of them can thwart the will of God. And the good news is, neither can yours. Listen to me, please. Christian, are you a Judah? Failing to live in obedience with a new covenant? Did your life bring shame to the gospel? Are you failing because you lack faithfulness? So I urge you to repent and let God's forgiveness And grace stir you to run from sin's temptation. To run to him and to pursue holiness. I hope that you're moved by God's kindness and patience towards you. As as patient as he was between these two. I pray that we can be a people who can fall on our face. And praise God that the likes of you and I could ever be called sons and daughters of the covenant. I want you to know something that none of you, none of us here are too low for God to deliver. We're not too far for him to reach. He can take the worst, the chief of sinners and radically transform them and use them for his purpose. He can take a Tamar and a Judah and weave them into his plan. As we read this story, we all know, we all know what we are capable of. But church, do you know what God's capable of? Your sin, your past, it stands no chance against the grace of God. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.